the book, How We Got It and How to Get the Most Out of It. This is part four. And the question we're looking at tonight is, is there propositional revelation? Written, recorded statements, revelation outside the canon of, of Scripture. I want to talk about why we'll look at that question. We're going to start with Jude, chapter 1, verse 3. That'll kind of be the opening text tonight. April 23rd is going to be World Impact Sunday. And we have, uh, the Garretts are going to be with us. After all their time in prison. And so they're going to be joining us on, on that Sunday morning. So you don't want to miss that. It's going to be really, really good. All right, June 1, 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We've been looking in this first part of this series at how we got the Bible we have. Um, Establishing the canon... Canon is simply a, a word meaning a rule or regulator. How we measure, that's what that word means. Establishing the canon of scripture, the text, the Bible, it obviously involves two tasks. They're, they're related, but they aren't quite the same. First thing we studied is we need to know which books to include. And we began with our study of the first 24 books, the 24 books of the Hebrew Scriptures. And while they're in a different order, and we talked about why that was important two Sunday nights ago, and while they're grouped differently, the 24 books of the Hebrew Scriptures are exactly the same books that we have in the 39 books of our Old Testament. So we would have books like 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. That would be one book in the 24 books of the Hebrew Scriptures. We would have the Minor Prophets, a string of them. They would have that in one book. So there aren't as many books, but exactly the same texts are included in those 24 books of the Hebrew Scriptures as we have in our 39 of the Old Testament. And so we saw how... Jesus then endorsed those very same books and no more. That was a really important part of our study. But we include more books than that. We've got 27 books, our New Testaments. The Jews don't include any of those. And so we took our whole last teaching to demonstrate why these books need to be included in the scriptures. Jesus said all 24 books of the Hebrew Old Testament, they all spoke of him. They were all about him. He said God had inspired those 24 books to point to his coming, his saving life, his sinless life, his death, his resurrection. We get that from texts like, there are lots of them, texts like Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he, that's Jesus, interpreted to them 
all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And he said, Abraham longed to see his day. He told the religious leaders and the scribes, those who looked after the Old Testament sacred text, that if they were serious about Abraham, they would embrace him, the Messiah, because that's what Abraham was looking forward to. That's what Abraham was all about. That's what the calling of Abraham, which is where Israel gets its existence. It was all about the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So, the first disciples, virtually all of them Jews, committed and raised in their Hebrew scriptures, they realized that they had to do something with the revelation they were receiving about Jesus, what they heard Jesus say, the things they saw Jesus do. And so Jesus appointed apostles, and they would bear testimony to his life and to his work and their writings were needed to guide this new church. What should they do, this church? What should they believe? What should they not believe? What did they need to know? These apostles weren't going to live forever. Peter, Paul, James, John. So how would future generations know with certainty what Jesus said, what Jesus did? Some guidelines had to be preserved to guide and protect this new church from error, from false teaching, from superstition. You begin to see that the forming of the scriptures, Old and New Testament, these, these two tasks, what is to be included, and then of equal importance, what needs to be excluded... How do we limit the possible candidates for recorded biblical truth? What are the criteria for saying no? These may be fine documents in many ways, but they're not biblical truth. They're not scripture. I mean, let's face it. We live in a world with all sorts of alleged sacred texts, piles of them. Almost every religion on earth has at least one, some more than one. Why don't we accept these as valid revelations from the same God? Why don't we just kind of merge, pull them all together? Forget about the things that divide us. Let's do a group hug. In short, what boundaries on truth claims should be set? How should we set them? That's the subject for today's, today's teaching. Okay, point number one. As surely as the apostles were specially enabled by the Holy Spirit for the composition of the New Testament, that was kind of last week's theme right there. So as surely as they were responsible for the writing of the New Testament, they were also irreplaceable once their task was completed. Last week, at night, we, we saw how Jesus made this special promise of his spirit to work in, in specific ways to establish the production of a reliable New Testament record of Christ, his word, his church. We looked at his words in John 14, 24, 25, and 26. 
Jesus is the speaker and he says, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. Okay, so he's with them physically. But he's not always going to be physically with them. So he says, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And as precious as that is for the Holy Spirit's work in all of our lives, the promise has very specific bearing on those original apostles. And the task they would have when Jesus was gone, virtually all of the books that we have in our New Testament are written after Jesus is gone. They had no way of double-checking. Is this really what you said? Do we get this right? They have no way of establishing that. And so Jesus, before he goes, he says... Don't worry about that. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit and he's going to bring to your remembrance all the things that I said. In another passage, he says, there's more, but you're not ready to bear them yet. That's another passage. The Holy Spirit will show you those things. Why weren't they ready to bear them right then? Well, because Jesus hadn't died. They had no way of, of knowing the meaning, the full meaning of his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the sending of the Holy Spirit, the second coming, all sorts of things would be explained in the epistles that those apostles had such little understanding of. Jesus said, you're not ready for that yet. Don't worry. He said, the Holy Spirit is going to guide you in this process. So that's our Lord's promise to these apostles that what they recorded would be true. What they recorded would be reliable. What they recorded would be guided by the Spirit. He would come and remind them of what needed to be recorded. But here's the important point. And it relates to a lot of strange things that are going on in the church today. And I want to talk about them just a little bit. This kind of authoritative revelation, the Holy Spirit would come upon these apostles. But that kind of revelatory work, that kind of divine inspiration of the text, it wouldn't continue like that indefinitely. Here's what we know. Judas, he betrays Jesus. He was replaced because of his untimely death. And I want to read that passage. It's fairly lengthy. Just, just listen. Acts 1, 15 to 26. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. This this is exactly what we were looking at this morning, remember? He's going to quote a psalm. And he's going to say, you know what this is really about? This is really about the death of Judas. Who beforehand spoke by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man... Judas bought a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Isn't that a lovely picture? And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akadelma, which is field of blood. 
For it is written in the book of Psalms. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And, quote, let another take his office. In the Psalms. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that our Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place, and they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. It's a fascinating text. No elections. The church assumes it must replace Judas. It gets it from an Old Testament psalm. This is what we've been studying in the morning. One of the principles, you interpret the Old Testament in the full revelation of the new. And so the church gets this instruction prophetically from the Psalms in their Hebrew scriptures. In other words, they don't see what they are doing in replacing Judas. They don't see that as a departure from their Hebrew scriptures. That's important. They see it as a fulfillment of their own divinely inspired Old Testament texts. But then something interesting happens. There is no compulsion to do this at the death of any other apostle from that time on. And it makes you, you, you will never get what you need to get out of Bible study without asking questions of the text. Always ask questions when you read your Bible. They feel that the Old Testament requires them to replace Judas. Okay? Right there. That's that for a minute. But they don't feel any compulsion as time, the years roll by, they don't feel any compulsion to replace any of the other apostles. What's going on? Why is that? Why must they replace Judas, a traitor, and not replace, say, John the Beloved, the apostle Peter, James, the brother of our Lord, or that great apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle Paul. Why is this the only time that the church bothered to replace any apostle at his death? And the reason is really important. The first dying apostle is replaced because, as of yet, there is no recorded New Testament letter or document. The assignment of the apostles still lies in the future. It is still incomplete. The apostles must complete the process described by Jesus where he said the Spirit would enable them to remember and record what the New Testament was all about. And so someone had to be there and they said from the baptism of Jesus when he begins his ministry to his ascension. Why? Because all of those things have to be confirmed by the Holy Spirit and recorded. Once those things are recorded, they don't replace any of the other apostles. Why? Because their job is done. We have it written. 
We have the record. We have a settled canon of scripture. Once that record is complete, and the apostles die off one by one, this is important. There was no one else ever who would be a bearer of revealed truth for the whole church. The apostles were not replaced once the New Testament is recorded because the work they did as it was completed is simply irreplaceable and non-repeatable. I say that because you always get people who think they have revelation, apostolic revelation for the church. And it just flies right in the face of the clear teaching of the New Testament. And it's a serious mistake to make. Point number two. Remember what we're looking at tonight. So we've dealt with how we got the 39 books that we have in the Old Testament. The first week was looking at the nature of absolute truth. Then how we got the 39 books of our Old Testament. Last week, how we got the 27 books of the New Testament. What we're looking at tonight is, why not more? Why aren't there other books? Why aren't there other letters? Why not other sacred revelation? And what we're getting at is, the replacement of the first apostle because the New Testament wasn't complete, and not any other replacements because their assignment was done. Now I want to look at the Apostle Paul in point number two. The Apostle Paul, he received his, it's really the most unusual apostolic calling in the New Testament. On the road to Damascus, and he specifically says he was the last. 1 Corinthians 15, 7 to 9, Paul is writing, and he's, he's talking about this order of events. You have to jump into the middle of his thought. And he says, verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Verse 8, last of all, and those are the money words. If Paul is the last of all, then how many apostles are there after him? Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And so the point there is... Jesus didn't just go on and on and on and on calling apostles. Paul says he was the last one to be called of that original group. Their work formed a finished revelation for the church. That's Jude 1.3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you. I found it necessary... See, the, the church has always had to fight the idea of additional revelation, binding revelation. It has always had to resist that. I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered. And there's a couple of things we don't like. The fact that it's necessary to go over this again and again and again. That's what we're doing tonight. And the second thing is that we're told to contend. And we don't like contending... We don't like to be against things. We, we like to be viewed as people who like everything. We're nice. If you're talking to someone under 30 and you come across as being against something, 
you're immediately viewed with suspicion. Intolerant, bigot, narrow-minded. I'm not arguing that there aren't people who are intolerant and bigoted and narrow-minded, but I'm saying there are certain truths that we're commanded to contend for because, because people are going to push against them. They're not going to be happy with them as time rolls by. There are things revealed here in these New Testament documents that don't play well in our culture. Y'all know what I mean? And so the instruction isn't find a way to make nice with everybody. No, the instruction is you church, fight for this. That's what contend means. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So those words, once for all delivered. This wasn't updated. You get those things on your iPhone or your iPad all the time. There's an update. There, there are no updates. No changes. It's not added to year by year or century by century. The church always goes back to what was once delivered. The fact that we're told to contend for it, it shows that, well, people will want to change. People will want to add. People will want to modify. They'll say it's outdated. They'll say it's irrelevant. They'll say it doesn't fit. And the writer says, fight for this. If you don't, it's going to slip away from you. Point number three. Peter saw Paul's writings as an expansion of what already existed in the original Hebrew canon of the scriptures. It's a pretty important text. 2 Peter 3, 14, 15, 16. Peter writes to the church, and they're experiencing a lot of persecution and hard times. And he says, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their destruction as they do the other scriptures. And so Peter recognizes that there's this body of truth that was pretty much known by the people to whom he writes. They already will know what he's talking about when he talks about the scriptures, verse 16. The church is already in agreement over this canon of truth, these 24 books at that time of the Hebrew scriptures. And then he says something striking. He includes Paul's writings with them. That might not hit us, but it would hit them like a ton of bricks. He includes Paul's writings with the scriptures. That's why he says people twist Paul's writings just like they do the other scriptures. So Paul's letters are in that same body, the scriptures. So Paul has the endorsement of the original apostles in a way that no other self-appointed apostle has. So let your mind kind of grab hold to what we're observing here. These devout, 
Jewish disciples. These passionate followers of the Hebrew canon of the scriptures, they're doing something absolutely unheard of. The sacred text is expanding. Paul's writings are being included. Four. We're almost done. The writings of the apostles and prophets together form the foundation of the church's life, doctrine, and ministry. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. Paul writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. And then he says something incredibly powerful built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. It isn't just the prophets anymore. It's the apostles and prophets. And the reason the apostles suddenly come into prominence, that's your New Testament texts. The reason they're suddenly important is because, well, Jesus Christ has come now. The cornerstone. The prophets were all looking forward to him but just through shadows, just dimly. And the apostles come and they explain Christ. That's why Matthias, he had to be there from the baptism of Jesus to his ascension. It's all about Christ. And so you get this foundation now, and it's the apostles and prophets. The whole church, says Paul. This church. Any true church. It rests down on only one foundation, and it's not a repeatable foundation and it's not an expandable foundation and it can't be edited. Other things get built on top of it but the foundation is established. It's finished. All ministries, all teaching, all church discipline, all worship, communion, baptism, it all rests down on the foundation of apostles and prophets. And this is significant The apostles are mentioned first, which seems strange because everybody knows the prophets came first and then the apostles. And and Paul does this. And the apostles are mentioned first. Think back to Sunday morning. Even though they come second chronologically because the partial revelation of the Old Testament is interpreted through the lens of the completed revelation of the New Testament. You can see how this theology, how it worked itself out practically in the life of the early church. This wasn't just theory. This is the way it worked. All sorts of different things were happening. Even in the church of Paul's time, we have an example of some. Let me just give you a quick for instance as we wrap up. 1 Corinthians 14, 37 to 40. Paul writes about a situation that is pretty common in the church today. There are all sorts of people who are self-proclaimed prophets and apostles. And so Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 14, 37, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy... 
do not forbid speaking in tongues. Seek not, forbid not is not in the New Testament. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Now, notice something. Paul does not take the path that many people would take today. He doesn't deny that there are prophetic words for the church or gifts of the Spirit. Paul is not playing John MacArthur here in some anti-charismatic role. He's not denying those things, but he honors the foundation. He actually regulates other prophetic functions in that church at Corinth. He says they either line up with this... Or they're not to be accepted. Well, Paul, who, who made you God? Well, he didn't make him God, but Jesus made him an apostle. And so you have this recorded record of the new church, and it regulates everything else that goes on in the church. He actually regulates other prophetic functions and other gifts by the foundation of apostles and prophets. He measures the authenticity of the foundation sorry, by the foundation of apostles and prophets. So are there still revelations? Yes and no. There are still prophetic words given to the church. The Bible says to test them and to measure them. What are we going to measure them by? By this. I don't mind. Some people still use that term apostle. To The word literally means sent one. That's what the word means. And sometimes when we talk about an apostolic ministry, we mean uh, someone sent to a brand new people group where no one has ever gone before. I'm okay with that. I don't think it's the best term, but it doesn't bother me. If someone, but if someone comes on the scene here and making like they're the apostle Paul or the apostle John and trying to dictate authoritatively who you should marry and who you should date and how this church should do this and how that church should do that. You just reject stuff like that. There is no longer any revelation that is universally binding for doctrine and practice in the church. There are apostles who have spiritual authority over my walk with Jesus. There are. They are all dead. They live in the pages of the New Testament. The apostles in the pages of the New Testament have binding teaching authority over all the church until Jesus comes back. Though they're all dead, they regulate our doctrine. They exclude contrary teaching. They dictate practice. So yes, God still speaks to his people. And yes, Christians know the voice of the good shepherd. But the way we've learned to recognize it and discern it is we know as his words abide in us by his spirit through the inspired pages of the New Testament. And if any revelation doesn't end run around the scriptures, it's not for us. It's not for us. I don't listen to it, and you shouldn't either. Our faith, while living and vital, Dex says it's a faith once for all, it's delivered. You have it. There's no new revelation about Jesus. 
There's no angel that's going to come and give some new revelation that we can tack on at the end of the New Testament. We don't take prophecies in the church and write them down at the end of our Bibles. It's done. It's finished. We learn it. We treasure it. We honor it. And everyone said, Let's pray.